There was an article in the newspaper this week titled, The FDA Urges People to Avoid This TikTok Trend with Avocados. And I guess according to TikTok, which is a video platform lots of people watch, there's some folks that have said, to best care for your avocados, you put them in water and you put them in the refrigerator. And it's this video that's been shared that tells people it keeps them fresher longer, I guess. But the FDA has had to come out saying that that's a common misconception. While it does keep them fresher longer, they say storing avocados in water and in the fridge causes major concerns over residual human pathogens like listeria and salmonella, they say. When an avocado is submerged in water, bacteria and fungi multiply rapidly, they say. And they've done this PR kind of campaign to try to battle this common misconception, I guess, that has gotten started. And I know less about agriculture than probably 95% of you. So <laughs> I'm just reading what I read. I'm not giving advice here. But apparently there's this misconception that has occurred that if you put avocados in water and in the fridge, it's good for the avocados. But actually, according to the FDA, they're doing this publicity campaign to say actually it's bad because salmonella, listeria, and other bacteria grow a lot faster. Is kind of this misconception that they're trying to battle. And I share that with you because there are common misconceptions that people have about the church that we're part of and that causes them to not want to participate in a church community. Some of those common misconceptions you've probably heard and I know I have heard like the church, the church just wants your money. That's all they want is your money. People at church, if I go there, they'll judge me. If I go there, they'll be talking about me. Church is just for a bunch of weak people that need God and a crutch. Or since I have tattoos, I can't go to church. The pastor never has anything relevant to say. I can't go to church because I smoke cigarettes. Many of those are misconceptions that people have about church. Now maybe at some point in the past those things occurred or even in a small couple few churches even now those things occur but I think we'll agree that most of those are misconceptions about what a church family is and how we act. And this story today that we read that Betsy read for us helps us battle some of those common misconceptions that have come about from the church in the past. Because if the church had acted like Jesus acts in this passage, and if we had followed his example for 2,000 years, none of those misconceptions would be an issue. So in our time together, we're going to look at the place where this occurs, the story occurs, the problem that the religious leaders kind of pose to Jesus, the point that he makes to them, and then we'll see the practice of Jesus as well as three implications for us as believers today. So let's first read about the place that this story occurs in, starting in chapter 7, verse 53. I know the, the paragraph division and the chapter divisions are a little awkward, but we'll start in 753, where it says, Everyone went to his home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, 
and he sat down and began to teach them. Now, I do want to make one quick note there. If you have a Bible similar to mine, there might be a bracket or two there that mentions how this story isn't included in all of John's manuscripts. I don't want to spend a lot of time on that, but I do just want to acknowledge that it's probably in your Bible and mine. And what occurs here is there's different copies we have of John's gospel, and some of them have some slight differences. Some of them put this story a little bit later in the book, things like that. Some of the older manuscripts don't have it for some reason. So if that's a question you have or want to talk more about, I would love to get coffee with you or a hamburger, and we'll go more in depth. But I've preached 49 sermons here at our church, and I haven't really had folks ask questions really about the technical aspects of the Bible. So I'm just going to go on, but I don't want to hide it or deceive you. I do want to acknowledge it. So if that's an issue or a question you have, I'd love to talk with you more. And in a couple weeks, if you're subscribed to our Wednesday email update, I'll have a couple articles about the Bible and the canon and how it came together. So where are we in this place? We see here Jesus' regular practice when he was in Jerusalem. He often would teach at the temple during the day, and then at night he would retreat to the Mountain of Olives to rest and sleep. And it says here in verse 2 that he goes to the temple early in the morning, and he's been teaching there. He's teaching there. And this is probably the next day after that famous eighth day of the Feast of Booths we just read about last week, where Jesus is there teaching about how he has water and it gives people um, living water that quenches their thirst forever. They can't get from any other source. And the religious leaders have sent some officers from the temple to arrest Jesus. They're trying to find a way to arrest Jesus, but those officers come back without Jesus. And we're about to read the officers, the Pharisees and the scribes, their next attempt to try to arrest Jesus this next day after that Feast of the Booths. We're still in Jerusalem, still at the temple. And we see that problem presented to us, to Jesus, in chapter 8, verse 3, where it says, The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. Now let's picture the scene. Jesus is there in the temple teaching, and there's a crowd around him. And these Pharisees and scribes bring this woman, and they put her right in the middle of the temple so everyone can see her. So as they set her in the center of the court, she's in plain sight of everyone. She's probably puzzled, scared, and not sure what's going on. If you can feel some of the anxiety she probably felt as she's brought in the middle. And as we are observers reading about this, this smells fishy for a couple of reasons. One, they have decided to interrupt stuff going on at the temple, and they're bringing an accusation to the temple, which seems a little weird. That's not the normal place you would do things like that. It's also fishy for a second reason. There's somebody missing from the picture, right? Amen. Amen. <laughs> the man is not there. The law, if they're really going to quote the law and punish her, 
The man deserves the same punishment that she is supposed to receive. And this leads us to think this is probably a trap that the Pharisees and scribes have come up with. Those officers in the previous chapter had come back empty-handed. They hadn't, had not been able to arrest Jesus. So the Pharisees think up another plan. Well, this is maybe how we can get him in trouble and get him arrested. And they cook up this plan where maybe they knew a woman that had certain inclinations or certain habits. They get a guy to do something with her and they agree for a couple of them to watch her and they catch her and then the guy kind of slips out and sneaks away and they take that woman and bring her to the court. It's probably a plan that these Pharisees and scribes have come up with as a way to trap Jesus. And these Pharisees that we're familiar with were guys that were probably wealthy, powerful. They oversaw the law and made many additional requirements and rules to the law. For example, when they took down all of the Pharisees' oral teachings on the Sabbath and put it in a book called the Mishnah, it took 27 chapters to fill up all of their rules for how you do and don't follow one commandment. Those were the Pharisees. And these scribes here, they're called scribes in my translation. In the NIV, it puts it probably a little better. It calls them teachers of the law, which I think is a good way to describe them, or the NLT, teachers of religious law. So they were part of the group that made copies of the Old Testament, but also were teaching it to people and helping people know what the Old Testament says. Some of them could have been part of the Pharisee groups, but when you read the other three Gospels, when they talk about scribes, they seem to be part of the Sadducee groups at times as well. And these two groups, they've set this trap with the woman to catch her, and they also have a second trap that they're trying to catch Jesus in by posing a problem to him, asking him, do we stone her and fulfill the law, or do we let her go? And that's going to get Jesus in trouble. If he says stone her, the crowd is probably going to turn against Jesus because they're going to take the side of the woman. But if Jesus says let her go, anyone in the crowd that believes in Moses and the law is going to turn against Jesus as well. So he's kind of got this catch-22. He's not going to keep either side happy. But there's also another level. See, Jews in this time under the Roman Empire, they didn't have the authority to take someone's life. So if Jesus even says, stone her, he's now going to get in trouble with the Romans as well. Because he doesn't have that authority and the Jews didn't have the authority to, to kill another person. So that's the second trap that they have designed for Jesus. Charles Ryrie in his study Bible has a note where he says, the Pharisees and the scribes, their motive was clear to trap Christ. If he recommended leniency, he would alienate the legalists. If he supported the death penalty, he would alienate the many who opposed it, even in those days. And that's the goal of these Pharisees and scribes. They're trying to trap Jesus. And John even tells us in verse 6, he tells us their purpose, where it says, they were saying this, testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. And that Greek word there used for test is perazo, which means to put someone to the test with the goal of them failing, right? You kind of set them up to fail with a test. 
When I first started attending uh, school to get my bachelor's degree, I was a business finance major until I realized I didn't like finance or business. But at that time, I was taking accounting classes and finance classes, and I had to take a statistics class that was really hard from a woman called, named Dr. Clark. And Dr. Clark, several of us had to take her class, learned she had a habit, if you had a, an afternoon class on a Friday, she had a habit of announcing at that afternoon class on a Friday that the test for next week was going to be moved up a couple days knowing that we all had perfectly great reasons for not attending class on a Friday afternoon, right? Some of us would just have a little longer weekend or have a little more fun. But her goal was, if you're not going to be in class, you're going to fail that next test. Because in statistics, you got to study and you have to bring your calculator. So I had a friend who took her class twice and failed both times. Me too. Me too. <laughs> Right? And that's the same idea here that these Pharisees and scribes, they're setting everything up for Jesus to fail this test. But Jesus doesn't respond to their question with words. Instead, he responds to them with something they can see, not what they can hear. And that's the point that Jesus makes starting in the second half of verse 6. It says, Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now, writing on the ground was something that teachers did back then. They didn't have overhead projectors or chalkboards or anything like that. So sometimes you would write in the dust or the, the dirt as a way to convey things. And what was he writing, do you think? We don't know. It doesn't tell us. But a couple ideas are maybe he was writing the sins of these accusers, these guys that have brought the woman. I wonder if he wrote their names in the sand, in the dirt. Maybe he wrote Matthew's name and Matthew's wife's name was Sarah, but instead of writing Sarah, he wrote the woman of Melissa, the woman he'd been having an affair with. Maybe he wrote Dave, and then next to Dave, he wrote a dollar sign, knowing that Dave hadn't been donating to the temple like he was supposed to. Maybe he wrote Carl, and then he wrote the names of Carl's kids, because he knew that Carl never spent time with his kids. I wonder if he was writing their sins in the in the dirt. He could have been writing scripture out for them to see. He could have been writing signs. John Calvin in his commentary, he says that the Pharisees and scribes questions don't even deserve a response from Jesus. So maybe Jesus was just doodling. We don't know, ignoring them. But we do know what he declares to them verbally. He tells them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone. See, according to the law of Moses, the accusers of the person that brought the person guilty had to throw the first stone. And he's calling out those few accusers that they need to be the first one to throw a stone, but only if they have not sinned, if they have no sin in their lives. 
So that's what Jesus maybe was writing. That's what he declared and he said. But I wonder what Jesus was feeling at this point in time. I personally think he probably was upset with these Pharisees and scribes. He was ticked off that they have taken this woman and they're using her. They have embarrassed her by bringing her right in front of everybody. They're judging her. They're using her for their own agenda. And they're probably even acting hypocritically because some commentaries say this was a really, really strict law from the Old Testament that not everybody even enforced. It's hard to find examples of when they actually enforced it. it was probably how Jesus was feeling upset at these guys because as we've read through John we see Jesus presenting himself to everyone he meets that Samaritan woman at the well he meets Nicodemus at night the message of John is that Jesus comes to offer salvation and hope to everyone regardless of their background and these Pharisees and scribes are acting completely opposite to his message and lastly we see the practice of Jesus and for us starting in verse 9. When they, that's the, the Pharisees and scribes, when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone, and the woman where she was, in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. See, here we see the accusers all leave. Jesus' words and his writings seem to pierce their hearts. Whatever he wrote in the ground moved their hearts and caused them to move their feet and leave. And eventually, it's just Jesus, the scared woman, but the crowd is also probably there too, watching all of this happen. The accusers leave, but the accused is still left there, the woman. And Jesus asks her, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She replies, no one, Lord. And Jesus says to her, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on. Sin no more. And this gives us three lessons I think we can learn from this story for us living today. It's a lesson in humility first. That we need to judge ourselves before we judge others. Because we all have sin in our lives. Some of us have more sin than others. Some of us have more public sin than others. Right? We might struggle with a private sin like jealousy or envy that no one really can see. Others might struggle with a sin like anger or language that others get to observe. But we all have sin that we struggle with. And there are times we might need to confront others that have blatant sin. And before we ever do that, we just need to gently remind ourselves that we have sin in our lives. We have struggles and avoid coming across as this perfect person trying to confront others. I was on staff somewhere once where there was a staff member that was regularly kind of irresponsible and late and not doing things, and I noticed on this person's vehicle that uh, his or her, we'll keep the 
um, pronouns, his or her, to avoid the offending the innocent. There. His or her tags were expired. So and I noticed on her truck, his truck, this isn't going to work very good, going the whole way. We'll just say his, okay? His truck, his tags were expired. And I said, hey, your tags are expired. And he said, oh, you know, I paid the bill, but I didn't put them on there. It's okay. I said, no, you got to put them on there. You're going to get pulled over. And I kind of made a big deal, you know, not a big deal, but just mentioned it. The next week when I saw him, he walked into our next staff meeting next week. He said, Christopher, I looked at your truck. And guess what? <laughs> my tags were expired. And I said, oh, man, they're in my glove compartment. I just haven't put them on. <laughs> and for years, this was years ago, it's always been that reminder. You got your own stuff. You got to keep an eye on. Don't worry about anybody else, even if it's simple as your tags on your truck. You know, keep your house, you know, cleaned and your grass mowed and your bills paid and show up to work on time. That's about all I can handle, let alone worrying about other people. Okay. So it's a good lesson in humility from this story that we judge ourselves before we judge others. But it's also a lesson in grace. Notice how Jesus didn't dismiss her sin. He didn't rationalize it and say, well, she has her needs and she, need, you know, she has her needs. He didn't do spiritual gymnastics to twist the law to say it was okay. He didn't say, well, well, her husband's kind of abandoned her. It's like she's a widow anyway. He didn't do any of that. He didn't find a loophole in the law for her to sneak through or to excuse her sin. She deserved to die according to the law, but Jesus forgives her. Jesus extends grace to her. Jesus does not dismiss her sins. He just places his cross between her and her sins. There is a, a person that came by the church last year to talk, and she had been doing some, some ministry to some of the homeless in our, in our community. And our church gave her some Bibles and tracts to use in that ministry. And the woman had said, you know, I go to these people and I, I kind of give them love. And I always tell them, I don't want to know your story, your background. I'm just going to love you and not worry about any of that. But some people in the police department had heard about her doing this and said, hey, there's a couple people you need to kind of know who you're talking to. And they gave some information on those individuals with, to her. Said, if you read it, great. If you don't, that's okay. But as a police officer, I feel like you need to at least have this information. And it revealed some difficult stuff for her. One person had been involved in some physical abuse and sexual abuse in the past. And she had shared as we talked outside here on the street about how it was hard for her to still show that love to those people. She said, I want to just go back to being ignorant of everything. And I told her, you know what, this is an opportunity for you because when you go out there and you do those same loving acts to them, your loving acts to them mean 10 times as much now because you know about their past. You know how they don't deserve these acts of kindness. And when they know that you know all of that stuff in their past and they see you still acting that way, it means 10 times as much to them. And that's important for us because if we explain away sin in our culture and we say sin doesn't make a difference and sin is meaningless, if we say there's no right or wrong, it kind of dismisses Jesus' death for us. If there's no sin, then Jesus' death doesn't mean anything. 
So this story, it's a lesson in humility, it's a lesson in grace, but it's also a lesson for us in holiness. Did you notice Jesus' last words to her? When we speak things, usually the first and the last things we say are kind of most important. And here he ends his talk with her saying, from now on, go sin no more. And when he says to sin no more, it means to cease to continue an action that's already started. It's kind of like stop your sinful habit. Don't return to it ever again. Jesus is telling her forgiveness is not permission for you to keep doing that thing, right? There's still a call to holiness. There's still a requirement for her to change. And that's for us too. When we interact with people and we forgive them, it's okay to tell them what you said hurt me. Please don't say it again. What you did had a lot of negative consequences to me. Please don't do it again. Forgiveness is not permission for someone to continue in sin. There still should be a change in lifestyle when we make mistakes. John Calvin comments on these last couple of words here. He says, hence we infer what is the design of the grace of Christ. It is that the sinner be reconciled to God, may honor the author of his salvation by a good and holy life. In short, by the same word of God, when forgiveness is offered to us, we are likewise called to repentance. Besides, though this exhortation looks forward to the future, it still humbles sinners by recalling to remembrance their past life. You know, we won't be perfect, and that's okay. But our calling for believers is to strive to be growing more and more like Jesus in our walk with him. It's a lesson in humility and grace and holiness we get from Jesus in this passage. As we wrap up our time together, I was reminded of uh, Brian Head Welch this week. You might know his story. He was one of the band members of Korn back in the early 2000s when they were popular and growing. And he's told his story, his testimony, a few times in a few different formats. And basically, he was part of Korn. They were growing and making hundreds of thousands of dollars. And like most rock stars, he ended up uh, having a child before he was married. He ended up getting addicted to cocaine and speed and his wife ends up leaving because she's addicted to drugs and he finds himself trying to take care of his nine-year-old daughter, be in a band, while still being addicted to all these drugs. But through some friends that were believers, they started to share some scripture with him, encourage him, and invite him to church. And one particular, he doesn't always share this in his testimony story, but in one particular venue, he talks about that first time he goes to church. And if you can picture a rocker, this is every stereotype. He's got the dreadlocks, tattoos everywhere, you know, dark makeup on, I think, at times. But he tells this story about when he first goes to church, and he's high and drugged out. But he goes and he sits in the back row. And he tells a story. Some guy walks up to him when he gets there. And he wraps his arms around him and says, hey man, it's great you're here, and sits with him. And he confesses his, 
his life to Jesus and believes in Jesus in that service. Now, he's still got to get off drugs. That's the whole other side of the story of how he get, gets rid of his addiction and gets his life right. Um, but that's always stood out to me that some guy wrapped his arms around this rocker that showed up to their Sunday night church service. And our church, I know Jesus wants us as a church family to love each other, which we do. I know he wants us to love his word and to grow in it. But I know he also wants us to love and welcome those new people that come to our church and visit us. And when they visit us, I hope we can tell them, hey, it's great that you're here. I'm glad you made it. Welcome them and ask them, how did you end up here? Do you know someone or, you know, things like that, that we can talk to them and welcome them. We can let them know, you know, I know you're new here. We're not perfect people, but we love each other and we love God. That's what we can tell them. And I hope in the future our church can wrap our arms around folks, just like Brian Head Welch had someone wrap their arms around him when he came. Let's pray. God, thank you for this story, the woman caught in adultery in John, and what it teaches for us that we're supposed to to extend your grace to others and love them and accept them, even when they're doing bad things, even when they're participating in habits that are harmful to other people, that hurt other people, that you give us this reminder that we love them in spite of those things, that we forgive them when they hurt us, but also that we're called to live in holiness and to grow in our relationship with you. Whatever those sins might be, this is just one example of many that we struggle with. So I pray as a church you would help us to live that holy life, to extend grace to others, and to be humble and remember to judge ourselves before we judge others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.